ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. At iShares, we believe that deep down inside of every investor is a better investor, one that's just waiting to be let out. Explore iShares ETFs and insights. Visit iShares.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Darren Sharinga, founder and CEO of Asymmetric ETFs, who back in February... They launched two new products. Now, these complement the first ETF from Asymmetric, uh, which is the Asymmetric Smart 500 ETF, ticker ASPY, A-S-P-Y. And basically, all of these ETFs are uh, rules-based. They can go risk-on, risk-neutral, or risk-off, depending upon things like price momentum and price volatility. I'm going to let Darren explain these, but... These are a pretty unique ETF, so I think you'll really enjoy hearing about these, and I'll also get Darren's quick thoughts on the markets right now. I'll also be joined this week by Charlie Travers, Portfolio Manager at Motley Fool Asset Management. Uh, he's PM on four of their ETFs, and one of the things that's interesting about that, at least to me, is three of those ETFs are index-based, and one is active. So I want to ask him specifically about that, uh, what it's like being PM on both types of products. And, of course, we'll spotlight those ETFs as well. And then I also want to get Charlie's thoughts on the markets, specifically on small cap stocks, which have uh, underperformed this year. So the active ETF Charlie manages is a uh, small cap growth ETF. So I'm very curious to hear his thoughts on what's been going on in that corner of the market. Now, to start this week... I have on the line with me Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. And look, I'm going to apologize in advance because just like last week, we are going to spend at least a few minutes talking Bitcoin ETFs. <laughs> Obviously, uh, blame me, not Todd. This was my grand idea. But here's the good news. I'm going to do this right up front and then be uh, done with it. I think that's the best way to make sure Bitcoin ETFs don't dominate this uh, podcast since I have a hard time controlling myself. And then uh, Todd and I will actually spend the bulk of our time looking at the top five ETFs in terms of inflows this year. Uh, Todd has some great data and commentary around that group of ETFs. So let's uh, chat with Todd now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. Todd, back-to-back -back weeks on the uh, podcast. I like this, and I should note for listeners, uh, you were graciously filling in last minute for uh, Tom Hendrickson, who, as I understand it, ran into some uh, travel issues. So thank you for that. Yeah, my pleasure. Although the opportunity to talk crypto ETFs back-to-back -back weeks with you was just so exciting that when <laughs> Tom put the bat signal out to the Vetify Voices saying who could help out, I just knew we'd talk about crypto once again. I knew we, we, I'd get to give you a chance to have some therapy uh, and happy to help steer the conversation with you. Well, do you like uh, my strategy here where, you know, we just talk about this topic up front and get it out of the way? Do you like that? I do, because even though there's such a small amount of money 
that's in crypto ETFs, and they make up crypto-related ETFs ecosystem, and they make up a modest portion. They certainly get a lot of attention. You know, I do, I think so do you, I do a regular search to see what's happening in ETF news uh, on a daily basis. And since BlackRock filed, which was just over a week ago, and we've had subsequent filings, that's what's dominating. That's what is showing up in my search. That's certainly what's showing up in social media. That's certainly showing up. Uh, and so we should talk about it. But let's get it out of the way so we can talk about where the money really is going in the ETF space. All right. So I will be quick here. And, and let me do this. Let me just uh, reset a little bit because there has been a flurry of activity, uh, to, to your point, since that uh, BlackRock filing for the iShares Bitcoin Trust. And then you, you can offer your uh, your quick thoughts here. So, look, um, we did see that filing for the iShares Bitcoin Trust. I thought it was uh, seemingly out of the blue, which I think caught a lot of people off guard. And so the immediate assumption was that BlackRock uh, may know something, right? We're talking about the world's largest asset manager. They're one who is uh, clearly well-connected in the political and uh, government and regulatory spheres. So following that filing, we quickly saw other issuers jump back in uh, with, with their own Bitcoin ETF filings or, or, or refilings, if you will. So Bitwise, Wisdom Tree, Invesco, and Valkyrie. And I haven't checked the SEC filings this morning, but I can't rule out somebody else throwing their name in the ring. And, and I just want to add to that, Todd, and then I'll, I'll pause here. Um, we also saw this new crypto exchange launch. It's called EDX Markets. So that's backed by some pretty big names like Citadel, uh, Fidelity, and Schwab. So I think that caught some people's attention just because of the timing here. And I should note with that particular um, exchange, what they're looking to do is is have a regulated and fully compliant venue in the same uh, vein as like New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ just for, for crypto. And then last, but uh, I guess not least, guess what is launching today? A two times, two times leverage Bitcoin futures ETF that is launching before a spot ETF. So let me pause there. Um, I'll just ask you any new thoughts since we uh, visited last week after seeing all this activity. Well, so I, I I have to admit I don't know exactly what I said last week, but I said something to the effect of if the industry thought BlackRock was going to be right, we would see more filings, and at the time we hadn't seen more filings. It obviously takes a little bit of time to, to restart the engine, uh, and we've seen more filings. So I don't know that it means any more that the SEC is going to approve any such spot Bitcoin ETF in 2023. I'm on record uh, both in putting my money where my mouth is with a bet with Eric Balchunas on your podcast uh, on Vetify's ETF trends platform. I don't think we're going to see a spot Bitcoin ETF approved in 2023 but certainly more people want to get in line in case that happens that they can be part of the action what i would note is it's certainly impacting the price of bitcoin and thus etfs that are exposed to bitcoin crypto equity uh strategies so we at vetify do a weekly series using the logically data that we recently acquired on the top performing etfs 11 of the 12 best-performing ETFs last week were crypto equity-related products like WGMI, which is a Valkyrie Bitcoin miners ETF, Invesco Alarian Galaxy crypto economy ETF, Sado. The only one that was not a Bitcoin ETF was actually Wheat, the Tucrium mm. Wheat ETF, W-E-A-T. So clearly sticking out in that in that field I uh, had a metaphor and it just broke down on me, but but weed is certainly sticking out there. And we've also seen an uptick in engagement on Vetify's platforms. We track our data uh, through something called Explorer, which is a data package that, that many people are starting to take a closer look at. BlackRock, I'm sorry, not BlackRock, blockchain thematic ETFs have seen a spike, as you'd expect. They're performing well. Investors are showing some interest in learning about that. But there's just not really money in there. You know, WGMI, the one I referenced that's the best performer in the past week, now has $12 million in assets under management. I don't want to repeat myself because I think you might use that clip uh, when I come on again. But, 12, <laughs> but, but wow, you know, clearly money is not going where the action is in the crypto space, even though the industry is 
is wanting to get on board. Yeah, it's funny you point that out. I think it was maybe last Friday I tweeted out that the top five performing uh, non-leveraged ETFs were all crypto-related. And I looked at flows, and if memory serves me correctly, only $8 million, $8 million had gone into all five of those products combined, which you just don't ever see that. And the returns on those ETFs, we're not talking you know, up 10%. We're talking up 100% plus. So it is really odd, but it's interesting. That, that makes sense to me that you're seeing more engagement on the Vetify platform around those ETFs. I'm just curious, and I'm putting you on the spot. I know that Vetify has done a good job just with – uh, th- th- their own coverage of these recent Bitcoin ETF filings. Are you seeing any outsized engagement just on those articles and just interest? Kind of going back to what we were talking about at the top, which is for whatever reason, this Bitcoin ETF story is just captivated everyone. You know, and that's been the case over the past several years. Anytime something new happens, and I'm guilty of that as well, it just captures everyone's attention. I- I'm just curious, have you noticed any uptick in terms of clicks on on Vetify's own coverage of this story? I have. So uh, for folks that know, ETF Trends is is one of the websites that's part of the Vetify family. We've been writing more about this, both from performance, from the the initial BlackRock filing. The, you know, we, we call ourselves Vetify Voices, uh, Dave Nadig and Tom Leiden and Roxana Islam and myself and others uh, chimed in to, to engage on this last week. And we saw strong interest in the content that said, this is certainly a buzz within the industry. Again, whether or not people will buy the product if it gets approved, and certainly if it gets approved, uh, to be determined. But this is certainly where the industry chatter is, so it makes sense we're talking about it um, ahead of where the money is. But, yeah, the money is not going into these products. The money's going into traditional equity and fixed income ETFs again this year. All right. As promised to listeners, um, I do want to move on here. The only other tidbit I'll offer out there is I saw a uh, headline from Bloomberg yesterday that Ark and Kathy Wood believe that they're actually first in line for approval if the SEC gets comfortable for a spot Bitcoin ETF. I have not had a chance to go and, uh, and, and look at the filing they had out there and what happens if they amend that. Because I think, as you, you know, in these 19B4 filings that are coming through, the, the big game changer here, at least in my opinion, uh, is the verbiage around a surveillance sharing agreement with a U.S. spot Bitcoin market. I don't believe that verbiage was in ARC's filing. Uh, and so what I don't know is what happens to the clock if they uh, amend that filing. But something else to, to watch and, and something I'm sure we'll be talking about on, uh, on future podcasts. Um, so, OK, well, let's move on. And, Todd, you just noted some of the Vetify engagement data around crypto ETFs. I'll point out that you also now have uh, very robust data capabilities with a Logically platform, which Vetify recently acquired. And by the way, I actually finally had a chance to demo that. I, I loved it. It was very impressed. Uh, I, I'm not here to you know sell anything, but I would recommend anybody who's interested in the ETF space, it's at least worth um, kicking the tires on that, doing the demo. I, I think you'll be uh, impressed with the data capabilities. But uh, Todd, I thought, let's look at the top five ETFs and inflows this year through the lens of some of that data, or even just some of the recent Vetify commentary. And very simply, what I'll do is I'll offer up the ticker symbol here. Uh, we'll go reverse order. You can add some color, and then perhaps I'll jump back in, depending upon <laughs> your your comments. And so um, I'll just jump in here. So the, the, the fifth best ETF in terms of inflows this year is the iShares Core U.S. Aggregate Bond ETF, ticker AGG. That's taken in over $8 billion. Um, though I should note, the sixth best ETF in inflows this year is BND which is the uh, Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF. That's essentially the same thing. That's also taken in over $8 billion. Those two, depending upon which day you check, I mean, they're, they're running neck and neck. But um, anything standing out to you on either AGG or BND or, or both? Yeah, I, I would probably combine them with the commentary in that we've seen fixed income ETFs lead the charge in 2023 uh, asset gathering, uh, both in the United States and globally. We've seen inflows come back into equity ETFs in June, and I know we're going to talk about some of those products in a moment. But more advisors are just getting comfortable using bond ETFs in their asset allocation strategies, and and core bond funds like AGG and BND are beneficiaries. Uh, These 
products provide ballast through income generation. They're less volatile. They, again, make a good chunk of that 40 in the traditional 60-40 portfolio. We're just seeing more interest in fixed income uh, on our platform. We, we talked about the Explorer data that we have. We're seeing more engagement there towards fixed income ETFs. We host a number of webcasts, and we're seeing really strong turnout for fixed income oriented webcasts. In fact, we're doing planning a fixed income symposium in July because there's just so many exciting ways to now get exposure to the bond ETF, uh, bond ETFs, uh, and slicing that a bit more narrowly. But the core bond ETFs remain kings. AGG, BND, those are the two heavyweights. That's where money goes when people want to get exposure to the bond market as a starting point, and then we're seeing people build around that as well. So I'm not surprised that this is the top of the, you know, towards the top of the list, uh, given that bond ETFs have been in demand in 2023. Yeah, and both of those ETFs um, are up just a little less than 3% year-to-date, if listeners are curious. Um, Okay, the fourth best ETF in inflows so far this year is an ETF I know that you have covered uh, very closely and that's JEPI, J-E-P-I, the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF. That has over $9 billion in inflows, about $9.5 billion to be exact, despite underperforming the S&P 500 by nearly 10 points, if you look at it. This thing's been an absolute uh, machine. So, again, I know this is an ETF you and I have talked about on the podcast, but any thoughts on, uh, on JEPI and the inflows this year? Yeah, it's hard to come up with something new and original because I think we've talked about it and you certainly have talked about it. But let me just state a couple of facts in case people are hearing this uh, about this ETF for the first time. You get exposure to less volatile stocks chosen by active management using covered calls. The yield, the SEC yield is eight and a half percent for that, which is for the ETF, Jeffy, which is impressive. Uh, given that the Fed has paused uh, raising interest rates, so you're getting high yield, but with uh, through equities and, and with a lower cost structure. You know, a few years back, I know you know this, I know the audience knows this, that, and you mentioned ARK earlier, ARKK was the poster child for active ETFs, and it put active ETFs uh, in the spotlight for many people. I just pulled some data just to see a reference point. In the two-year period from April 2020 to April 2022, which is what I feel was the heyday for ARKK, it pulled in $14 billion, and Kathy Wood was everywhere, uh, rightfully so, for the strong performance. In the last two years, as of yesterday, JEPI has pulled in $24 billion. It's just unbelievable. Reiner. It's unbelievable. Hamilton Ryder, who is a great portfolio manager, and he and his team at J.P. Morgan, I don't know that I see him anywhere to the same degree that we saw Kathy Wood. And, and you mentioned just the machine that's there. I just was looking at daily flows uh, this week, $60 million, $85 million, $68 million. This is not one huge trade that's going into Jeppy. This is a consistent net inflows uh, almost on a daily basis. It's just a shine. It shows that J.P. Morgan is – has become the leader in active ETFs. You know, we, we've seen many more firms embracing active ETFs. J.P. Morgan is a firm to be catching in this space. It's funny you mention that. I actually saw a tweet uh, this morning from Morningstar's Ben Johnson where he uh, he listed the top active ETF providers in, in flows. And I'll just I pull this up right here. So number one is Dimensional. Number two is J.P. Morgan, and I do think, obviously, Jeppy has helped boost the entire J.P. Morgan active lineup. We know they've had J.P.S.T., um, the, the ultra-short bond ETF, which has really helped things. But you mentioned ARC. ARC's now down at seventh on the list. So, so it goes Dimensional, J.P. Morgan, First Trust, American Century, PIMCO, Innovator, and ARC is, is what he has there um, on that table. So... I, just interesting, and uh, again, what what I'll be watching for, and we've, we've seen a little bit of this, is whether or not J.P. Morgan continues to try to capitalize on this with some additional um, launches, not just covered call ETFs, but just in the active ETF space. Um, okay, number three on the list of uh, top inflows this year is the iShares MSCI USA Quality Factor ETF, ticker symbol QUAL, nearly $10 billion in, in inflows. 
And I mentioned Jeppy underperforming. This one has actually outperformed the S&P 500 by a couple of points, like 16% to the nearly 14% on the S&P 500. Anything noteworthy you you would uh, point out here? So, yeah. So unlike Jeppy, which has had consistently modest net inflows uh, throughout the year, QAL got nearly half of its net inflows uh, in March, uh, BlackRock. May, you know, which does model portfolios uh, available through InvestNet and other platforms. They made a portfolio allocation shift into QUAL uh, away from ESGU, which is an ESG ETF uh, that was made in March. And so that's where a good chunk of that money, almost half of the money came in. But what's encouraging to me is that money has continued to pour in in the second quarter, much more like what we have seen with Jeppy, uh, because given the uncertainty of earnings and the economy, many advisors are turning towards those higher quality blue chip companies uh, and a tilt uh, towards those quality companies. We're seeing that uh, across the broader industry. QAL is, is the leader within this space for quality, but we're, we're seeing demand uh, as well as supply uh, for these higher quality strategies. In fact, victory launched a U.S. large-cap free cash flow ETF, VFLO. Uh, recently, it happens to be tracking, not happens, it is tracking an index that we at Vetify are, are providing. It focuses on companies with strong fundamentals. We're just seeing, given the environment we're in with the uncertainty, that high-quality, strong cash flow, consistent earnings companies are in demand. And, and as you mentioned, it's outperforming. It being qual is outperforming. Yeah, well, I think what stands out to me here is if you look at the underlying holding. So, I, I mean, the top holding right now is NVIDIA. And we can debate, you know, quality on that or, or, I guess, valuations. But then that's followed by Apple, Microsoft, Visa, and Meta. And, you know, you look at companies like Apple, Microsoft, and Meta in particular, Go back five or ten years, you know, were those considered uh, quality companies or more growth? Now, obviously, you can have both quality growth companies, but I think it's interesting how maybe the narratives change because you look at a company like Apple and just the cash on its balance sheet and the way that it basically prints money every year, uh, it has become a quality play. We, We saw that earlier this year. If you look at the performance of some of those companies versus um, you know, other small cap companies, which we'll talk about later, or um, other companies in the S&P 500, investors were gravitating to what I would say is the quote-unquote safety of, of a company like Apple or Microsoft. Does that stand out to you at all? Just maybe how the, the, the what you would think is a quality stock may have evolved over the past five or ten years? It's it, Yes. So, yes, it certainly has. You know, if you ask people to define what is a blue-chip company, over the years, I don't know that NVIDIA might have been top of mind for them, but it, or, or meta platforms uh, would have been top of mind. But they have met the criteria, and they've certainly performed well. But the other holdings that I see when I'm looking at the top ten, it includes Johnson & Johnson and Nike and Eli Lilly and Visa. That's what I would consider to be high-quality blue-chip companies if I was thinking about it in this current environment. Pepsi. Um, so this is... What's interesting about Qual is that it's sector neutral, so it is going to have a heavy load towards technology stocks because that's where the broader market is exposed, but it's going to have the higher quality uh, of those technology stocks or the higher quality consumer discretionary or energy companies um, as opposed to in an unconstrained approach where you might be tilted towards consumer staples um, or just healthcare companies. All right, number two on the list is the iShares 20-plus year Treasury Bond ETF, ticker TLT. Listen to this, over $11 billion in inflows this year. And this one's interesting to me because you have advisors and investors really taking on a meaningful duration risk for, last I checked, about a 3.9% SEC yield. And obviously, I think the idea here is that rates come back in, and perhaps they get some capital appreciation, right? Because you can go and get north of 5% right now um, without taking on hardly any duration risk at the front end of the curve. So, you know, I think maybe there's a couple things going on here. One, either it's being used as a hedge 
uh, for a potential recession. Or two, again, it's just straight up being used as a play on the hope that the Fed not only pauses, but but pivots and starts bringing down rates. And, and maybe, you, again, you get some capital appreciation here. But a, a, any thoughts on TLT? Yeah. So uh, a, a couple of things. One, I th- you know, TLT really saw some strong inflows in May. This year is a flight to safety. We had the debt ceiling crisis. There was initial expectations that the Fed would pause their rate hiking program, which they have done so. Um, and now there's uncertainty about what the next move might be. But people turn towards CLT uh, for you know, the uncertainty that's out there. There's still concerns about a recession, and long-term Treasury bonds have been a good place to invest. If there is a, a recession, I just also think that it speaks to the liquidity of the the bond ETF marketplace that increasingly, you know, you mentioned advisors and retail investors, but certainly institutions are embracing the ETF structure. And we're now seeing that they can they're turning towards an ETF like TLT instead of just buying treasuries outright. Uh, and so I'm just impressed that money has stayed in, uh, you know, pulled in three and a half billion in May, but we're seeing still inflows thus far in June as well. But yeah, you can earn higher rates for shorter, you know, without taking on the same interest rate risk. So it's intriguing to me that people are gravitating towards TLT. Well, and uh, to your point on just this continued interest in bond ETFs, I'm going to call out a piece that you recently wrote on bond ETFs uh, globally approaching $2 trillion in assets. And I saw in that you had a, a, a snippet that BlackRock expects that number to triple to $6 trillion by 2030. And I think and you pointed this out in the uh, in the piece, but I always go back, and I know I've talked about this before, to just how fixed income ETFs handled the COVID crash back in March of 2020. And then, obviously, the Fed coming in and buying ETFs. I think those two things, the way that Bond ETFs acquitted themselves. They they operated as price discovery vehicles. Nothing broke. And then the Fed showing the confidence of using the ETF structure to, to you know, help get some liquidity into the credit markets. Those two things really, I think, helped a lot of people who are sitting on the fence on bond ETFs jump to the to the to the right side, in my opinion, and get comfortable. But um, what did you think of that BlackRock number, by the way, six trillion by 2030? Yeah, so that actually is an increase. They they had previously said five trillion, and they now think uh, that it was going to hit six trillion dollars. So again, this is globally. Mm-hmm. I I am hopeful that it happens. We're continuing to see adoption, you know. And in the piece, I pulled together uh, some stats, just looking at what's happening with bond trading, and uh, you know, we're in middle of 2023, so 2022 data is only so relevant, but. U.S. bond ETF trading uh, soared in 2022, as uh, despite the fact that obviously there were outflows, uh, or not outflows, there was money coming in, but the performance was relatively weak within bond ETFs. People turned towards bond ETFs and away from bond mutual funds. And then interestingly, active managers are turning to bond ETFs. I, I cited in the piece uh, four different mutual funds that we came across that are owning ETFs to get liquidity, um, high yield exposure, municipal bond exposure. You know, we're talking about TLT at the moment, but other bond ETFs continue to make up that ecosystem. And what we're seeing is investors are shifting from one bond ETF to another uh, and staying invested in the marketplace because they've got more tools to work with. And by the way, I should have noted that TLT is up about 5% uh, year to date. All right, Todd, just like about a minute left. We'll have to go quick here. The top ETF and inflow so far this year. Uh, drum roll, please, though. Uh, this will be absolutely no surprise, I think, to most listeners. Number one is the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, ticker VU, VOO. This is uh, vacuumed up nearly $14 billion. Uh, I would say despite a lackluster year in equity inflows overall, though those have picked up recently if you look over the past month or so. What do you say about uh, VU? Yeah, so VU is uh, the Vanguard 500 ETF. We've seen strong inflows in June, over $4 billion, which is, again, driving a nice pace as we head into the second half of the year. I just want to throw one stat at you. Uh, You want to ballpark how much money VU has pulled in in the last three years? 
because it's it's a shocking number. Obviously, we're talking about 2023, but if you look at the three-year period as of yesterday, do, do you want to give me a round? I number can't even hazard a guess. It's going to be higher than whatever I uh, put out there. Eighty-nine billion dollars. Oh, that's unbelievable. In the last three years. So, just for perspective, because the numbers get thrown around so much, uh, you know, eighty-nine billion dollars is bigger than most ETFs. Uh, it's bigger than most that, ETF that issuers. Yeah. So just Vanguard 500. So, um, again, it's a good sign when investors are embracing ETFs. They're turning towards a relatively cheap three basis point ETF that's well diversified, that keeps you invested in the marketplace. And we're seeing investors pair VOO and BND using Vanguard products to allocate towards U.S. equity and U.S. fixed income and that's going to help many investors. Keeping it simple is is okay in the ETF space. You know, we've got lots of creative products, some we've talked about today, and some that are hopefully coming in, in, in your mind. But there's nothing wrong with owning the S&P 500 for three basis points. Yeah, and again, I noted this earlier, but uh, VU, or the S&P 500, is up nearly 14% this year. Todd, a fun chat this week. Thank you for entertaining me on the uh, Bitcoin ETF discussion again. And, and thank you again for filling in last minute for uh, Tom Hendricks. And this was great. My pleasure. Happy half year. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. Are you looking for a passive ETF that isn't so passive? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF ticker TMFC is an index fund that's filled with high conviction stock picks from real professional analysts. It puts the 100 top-rated stock picks from the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC into one simple low-cost ETF. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Joined by Darren Sharinga, founder and CEO of Asymmetric ETFs, who currently offers three ETFs, about $25 million in assets. That's led by the Asymmetric Smart 500 ETF, ticker symbol ASPY, A-S-P-Y. And then the other two ETFs just launched in uh, February, which we'll uh, certainly get into those as well. Darren's now on the line with me from New York. Darren, great to uh, reconnect. Welcome back to the podcast. Nate, it is a pleasure to reconnect, and thank you for having me on. All right, so before we get to the ETFs, I do want to talk a little bit about your background, because I'm guessing some of our listeners might be surprised to learn that you actually founded Exchange Traded Concepts, ETC. That was back in uh, 2011. That's the first, and I believe it's still the largest white-label ETF platform out there. You also founded Yorkville ETF Advisors, which was acquired by Van Eck in 2015. And, of course, Van Eck is one of the uh, larger ETF issuers out there. And then you started Asymmetric in, uh, in 2020. So just talk a little bit about your uh, journey here from founding ETC to, uh, to Yorkville to standing here today talking about Asymmetric ETFs. Sure. So I actually co-founded Exchange Traded Concept. It is the largest, was the first and still is the largest white-label ETF platform. And the reason we founded ETC was we wanted to get into the market and launch a couple of first-mover products. And at that stage, still uh, over a decade ago, it took more than a year to get your exemptive relief, or roughly a year, and it was $500,000 million to to pay for it. Things have changed a lot in the last uh, 12 years. And so to accelerate our time to market, we, we looked at sponsors that had exemptive relief but no products in the market, and that led us down to um, to ETC down in Oklahoma City, which was formerly Faith Shares, and we uh, ended up acquiring it, rebranded it, launched a white-label platform, and then with our first funds, we launched them on the platform, and that was for Yorkville ETF Advisors. And so... Um, Yorkville ETF Advisors, our first funds, we were pioneers in, in rules-based investing. We were uh, second to market after AMLP in the MLP space with YMLP. 
uh, it picked up 350 basis points, so yielding roughly 10 percent, with with no greater risk than than AMLP. So that became actually a top 10 fund launch for us in the year we launched it, and uh, so it was great. And ultimately, a few years later, we ended up selling it to to Van Neck, and, and at that point, Nate, and I'll, maybe we'll touch on this, I got into the, the hedge fund business, which leads us to where we are today with uh, asymmetric ETFs. Well, maybe that is a good jumping off point, because why don't we do this? Let's talk about um, ASPY, and then we can certainly talk about the other two new ETFs, but I think by looking at ASPY, that'll give us some of the underpinning from that uh, that hedge fund background. So ASPY is an index-based ETF. As I understand it, you're looking at price momentum and uh, price volatility to determine the underlying positioning. So just walk us through that at a high level and what's going on underneath the uh, hood. Absolutely. So ASPY, and and in fact, all of what we call now our smart solutions are powered by the same technology. We call it asymmetric smart technology. And that was behind the hedge fund seed. The, The same technology that powered the hedge fund seed, I developed it over a decade ago, and it, it was designed with one investment objective in mind, and that was to provide protection against bear market losses. And how does it do that? It does that by looking at two price-based signals. One, as you mentioned, is, is, is the price momentum indicator, and the second one is the price volatility indicator. And basically, by looking at the market with a high degree of confidence, our asymmetric smart technology is able to tell us where the market is currently, and, it, and, and that's what it does. At its core, asymmetric smart technology measures market risk. And so then it buckets it once it has market risk by, by looking at the price movement of the market and the price movement of the underlying securities of the market. It's risk into three categories, bull market, uncertain market, and bear market. Pretty simple, right? Which is we want to make it that way so investors can understand it. And so when we have – so as market risk increases – what does our technology do? It reduces portfolio risk. And, and, and then I say this often, but that's similar to what Goldman Sachs does. As is, is market risk rises, as is, is market volatility starts to increase, Goldman Sachs on the prop desk will, will lower their overall risk exposure. They'll lower their gross exposure. They'll lower their net exposure. Two lines of defense. Lower the amount of money you have invested in the market and then lower the amount of exposure you have to the direction of the market. And that's what, that's what our technology does. So at its core, measures market risk. Once it, it buckets it into three categories, bull market, bear market, uncertain market, as market risk increases, asymmetric smart technology lowers portfolio risk. So that's what powers ASPY. And, and, and the beauty of that, again, designed to provide protection against bear market losses, is ASPY, it's called smart equity because it actually produces S&P 500 returns. This is what it's designed to produce, S&P 500 returns with a fraction of the risk. And, and so that's what you've seen historically when you look at it because it's an index-based product. We, we integrated our technology into the S&P 500 and transformed beta long-only exposure into low-volatility asymmetric returns, which are equity returns with a fraction of the risk. So... Um, with ASPY, when you look at it historically, the maximum drawdown, because that's the way we view risk on an absolute basis, how much money can you lose in a strategy or how much money, more importantly, has a strategy lost over time. That gives a, a really great indication of what the risk is. The greater the losses, the higher the risk. ASPY, historically, the index is, is dropped 10%. Well, relative to the S&P 500, the maximum drawdown in the S&P 500 is over 50%. So you're getting the same returns as the S&P 500, with one-fifth the, the risk of the S&P 500, that's smart, right? You're, you're, you're improving your risk return profile dramatically. Less risk with greater returns. And I just want to be clear here. So the starting universe is obviously the S&P 500 constituents, but then how many holdings will ASPY whittle down to? Okay. So our, 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 our equity exposure in the portfolio is actually MinVol equity exposure in it, and we whittled the 500 names in the S&P 500 based on, the, based on, on volatility. We lower it down to, to 50 names. So mm-hmm. the portfolio invests in the 50 lowest volatility names within the S&P 500, 
and we rebalance both the 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 portfolio for the the min ball names what we call our low vol 500 on a monthly basis as well as readjusting what the portfolio exposures look like based on the current market risk environment on a monthly basis so the portfolio is rebalanced on a monthly basis both our equity exposure which is min ball as well as our overall portfolio positioning our net net exposure Okay, so if ASPY's uh, long portfolio is essentially a, a min or, or low vol portfolio, I'm just curious, how would you compare this ETF to, say, uh, the largest minimum volatility ETF out there, the largest low vol ETF? Like if I'm an advisor evaluating between, um, you know, these three ETFs, ASPY and then, say, again, the most popular min vol and, and low vol ETFs, how does ASPY compare? Or are those not the right comparison since you have this uh, – hedging element with a spy well i i think that it's, it's interesting so i i think there, there there we did a white paper that you can pull off of our website that that looked at minvol strategies and and the the great news about minvol is it actually goes against conventional investment wisdom wisdom which is lower risk lower returns actually minvol provides lower risk with 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 greater returns than the s&p 500 historically and and a spy and our, our 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 low vol 500 does the same thing. And in fact, one of our investors said it's more responsive, Darren, because you're rebalancing it on a monthly basis, and we're so we're measuring volatility on a much greater frequency and rebalancing the portfolio. So it, it should be a purer min vol exposure relative to our competition. But the problem with min vol, including our long book, is that equity exposure is equity exposure, and equities are going to move together when a market is distressed, meaning when you move into a bear market or a COVID situation, when, when the market was down 24% or the S&P was down 24% in March of 2020, you found that MinVol strategies, both the, the big players out there that I think you mentioned, USNB or SPLE, one of them dropped a little more than the market, so MinVol provided no downside protection, and the other one dropped almost in line with the market, a little less than that. So the problem is, Equity exposure, when, when the market is, it moves into a distressed situation, is going to spike. And, and we, we saw that in, in 07 through 09, 00 to 02, that correlations go up. So MinVol is going to move down with the market. And what, what is interesting is you see that the day the market bottoms, MinVol basically bottoms at the same time. The difference now with ASPY is that we, do a, we, we hedge. The only way you can change the return profile of equities is by doing something different. You can't put more equities in and expect something different. You're going to get more equity returns and, and equity-like volatility um, from them. So what we do is by hedging, ASPY now has the ability to cut off that tail risk um, uh, that that come with USMB or or or, or SPLV other Minvol strategies and really give investors I think what they're looking for when they're buying Minvol, which is they they like the lower volatility they like the equity exposure, but they don't like the downside, and and with ASPY you're you're have the potential of cutting off that downside risk relative to to other Minvol strategies. And last I checked, this ETF was still uh, positioned as full risk on. Is that still the case? It is. Nate, you're asking, is it still risk on? Correct, yeah. Correct, yeah. It, it, it is. So, so think of this. This is important because at the core, asymmetric smart technology measures market risk. And, and again, buckets it in bull market, uncertain market, or bear market. So our technology has accurately measured the S&P risk profile for the entirety of the year. It, it actually started the year in January in a, in a risk-elevated mode, which would, in that point, the, the portfolio is positioned to preserve capital. It's, it, it, it's market neutral. And, but then January, which makes sense, we're coming off a, a strong bear market in 2022, and so the fact that the portfolio would be conservative would would make sense. The technology would read a, a, a risk-elevated environment. But since then, since January, February, March, April, May, June, till current, the asymmetric smart technology has read the S&P 500 as being in a bull market. You mentioned earlier uh, with your last guest, with Todd, that, that the market's up, the S&P's up almost 15% on the year. So our technology has done what it's supposed to do. It's measured the S&P 500 in a risk-on environment. Whatever's driving performance, the bottom line is the S&P 
is been making money for investors. The right position to be in is to be invested in the S&P 500 so far for, for 2023 because you're making money. The market's going up. So current positioning is risk on. Uh, it's been risk on since February, and that's been the right positioning. So it's an other statement of just the efficacy of asymmetric risk management technology, which we call asymmetric smart technology, that powers all of our our our, our suite of smart solutions. Uh, sort of on this note, I know uh, ASPY is obviously just following the rules, but do you have any strong views on the markets right now? And, and let me color that by saying I actually work with a uh, a few rules-based quant types, and I've got to tell you, uh, sometimes, actually oftentimes, they have to fight their uh, inner emotions. Like they personally disagree with what their own model is kicking out, which can make it uh, hard to follow, right? And obviously, you're going to follow the, the model regardless. But do you ever find yourself in that position? It, 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 it's funny you mention that. Um, I used to. And, and then, but what I found over time is that I'm my own worst enemy. When, once I start listening to my own heart, what it tells me about the market, and I start letting fear and, and greed rule and influence my decisions, then I am generally wrong. And, and so I, I and, and historically looking at what, what asymmetric smart technology has said about the market, it, it, it's, it's, it's mainly right. Nothing's perfect, but it, it's more right than I am. So I've gotten rid of that feeling now. It's like, no, I'm, I've, I follow the technology. We have to in the ETF because it's a rules-based strategy. But even personally, I, I look at what, what asymmetric risk management technology or asymmetric smart technology is telling us and follow it because I've made too many costly errors in betting against it or, or, or making different decisions when I was wrong and, and – um, Asymmetric smart technology was right, so no, I, I'm, I don't, I don't fight that battle anymore. I've lost it, and I've, I've thrown in the towel on it. So I'm, I'm a firm believer in sticking to um, a, a quantitative strategy and having a disciplined, repeatable process. It gives you the results that you're looking for more consistently. Darren, just a couple of minutes left here. Let's briefly touch on those two ETFs you launched at the beginning of February. And I know we could do, you know, a whole hour long podcast on these, but if, if you could just boil down a snapshot on each of these. So there's the Asymmetric Smart Alpha ETF, ticker ZSPY, and then the Asymmetric Smart Income ETF, ticker MORE, M-O-R-E. Uh, just give us, again, a, a quick snapshot on both of those. I know those are two very different ETFs. I'd love to. So our, our Smart Alpha series, why is it smart? Because it's designed to produce greater returns with the same risk. And that's smart from an investing standpoint. Greater returns, same risk. So ZSPY is a new source of alpha for investors. And it offers leverage for investors, not for traders. Current leverage products offer leverage for traders. And so with ZSPY, it's leverage for investors for two reasons. One, it gives investors more of what they want, which is upside leverage. Right? Investors want more of the upside of the market. They don't want more downside of it. So based on our, again, our asymmetric smart technology, we're only adding leverage when, when volatility is low and, and the market's trending up. When we're in a bull market, we add leverage to get more of what we're looking for, capture more of the bull market gains, deliver alpha across the portfolio. The second problem that, that ZSPY addresses is existing leverage products are offer daily leveraged returns. So if you own it for a long period of time, there's lots of market volatility. Even if the market's up over that period of time, there's no guarantee the product that the leverage product's going to be up because of, of, of leveraged daily returns. ZSPY offers leveraged period returns. Very different. If you own ZSPY for a 10-year period of time and, and held it, buy and hold, and the market was up 5x over that period of time, the S&P 500, you'd expect ZSPY to be up about four and a half times, uh, nine and a half times, sorry, uh, the market. So so two things. It's a new source of alpha for investors, ZSPY. Um, it, it's leverage for investors, not for, for traders, in that it gives investors more for the looking for upside while still offering protection against the downside and leverage period returns versus leverage daily returns. So that's more, and then it works. Um, based on our technology, since you look at the end of February when 
when ZSpy was risk on at that point, um, I think it was the beginning of February, so you look at the trailing three months, ZSpy is up 17%. The S&P is up roughly 10%. It's delivered 175 basis points of, of, of ELF over the S&P 500. So, again, a proof statement of, of the efficacy of asymmetric smart technology. So then our smart income solutions, why are they smart? Greater income with, with, with less risk. And, and so what our smart income is looking to do is produce income in the portfolio, maximize income when income is secured. And, and, and how does it do that? By, by investing in asset classes, high-income asset classes, when they're in a bull market and, and, and getting out of them when they're in a bear market. So in a bull market, you have the prospect of, of price appreciation. Well, you're also maximizing income in a bear market. You, you Again, our, our philosophy, you want to preserve capital. That's the secret to wealth creation. So... Um, our, our smart income product more is um, greater income with a, with, 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 a, with a similar risk profile. What's unique about it, there are certain advisors that don't want derivatives in their portfolio, don't want leverage in their portfolio, don't want options. More does not have derivatives, does not have leverage, does not have hedging in the portfolio. It's a plain vanilla strategy. It's a tactical allocation strategy that uses our technology and looks at MLPs, REITs, and utilities, three high-income producing equity asset classes, and, and says, what are they? Are they in a bull or bear market? Or, and, and by doing that, when they're in a bull market, it allocates in the portfolio to those asset classes. When they're in a bear market, it allocates away from them. And, and that's what it's doing. There's more to the technology, but I know we're running out of time here. So uh, Moore is going to declare its first quarterly distribution this week, and uh, it's looking around 6% current yield, and a portion of that, because of the MLP exposure in the portfolio, will be uh, tax efficient, because MLP distribution is a good percentage, is treated as return of capital. So we're distributing 100% of the income that the fund makes out to investors, but a portion of that will be return of capital, which means it's even the added benefit is not only 6.2%, it's 6.2% that's tax, a portion of that's tax efficient. Well, Darren, two very interesting uh, ETFs. Congrats on the new launches this year. Certainly wish you uh, the best of luck as you continue building out the entire asymmetric lineup. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you for having me, Nate. That was Darren Sharinga, founder and CEO of Asymmetric ETFs. Because commodities indices are more likely to represent the super cycles of yesteryear than today's new and emerging commodities regime, Newberger Berman's actively managed commodity strategy ETF seeks to transcend the limits of traditional indexing, offering both inflation insurance and an emphasis on the catalyst driving today's changing economy. Embrace the road ahead and learn more about NBCM at nb.com NBCM. An investor should consider NBCM's investment objectives, risks, fees, and expenses carefully before investing. This and other important information can be found in NBCM's prospectus, which you can obtain by calling 877-628-2583. All ETF products are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please refer to the prospectus for a complete discussion of NBCM's principal risks. Yes, this week, certainly not least, is Charlie Travers, portfolio manager at Motley Fool Asset Management, who currently offers six ETFs, over $1.2 billion in assets. That's led by the Motley Fool 100 Index ETF, ticker TMFC, which we will take a look at. Uh, Charlie's now on the line with me from Virginia. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Nate. Happy to be here. All right, so let's start with uh, TMFC. You are actually the portfolio manager on this, and I obviously want you to tell us more about that ETF itself, but I also think it'd be interesting to have you explain what does a portfolio manager on a passive product actually do, because some people may think that sounds like a pretty cushy job. Maybe you're not that busy. You're just tracking an index. So uh, tell us about the ETF and, and tell us what you do. 
Sure. Um, I'll, I'll start with what the index is. It is um, a list of the 100 um, largest companies that are part of the Motley Fool uh, publishing companies, um, active stock recommendation universe. This is their analyst highest conviction ideas. Um, and then they are market cap weighted into an index, uh, which our ETF tracks, uh, it tends to be tech and consumer heavy. Um, so it can be viewed as a, uh, growth tilted complement to the S and P 500 or, or perhaps even an alternative or other large cap passive products. Um, but, yeah, what I do uh, when I'm wearing my passive portfolio manager hat is kind of live by the uh, finance version of the Hippocratic Oath, which is to do no harm, um, <laughs> and then basically track that index. Um, now, the, the, the day-to-day um, in between the quarterly rebalances, you're right. Um, it, it's basically a hands-off, um, let the ETF do its work. And, you know, there's a nice part about that. You know, you, you avoid all of the behavioral biases of people trying to tinker with portfolios. Um, now, this week, for example, um, we have our rebalance on June 30th. So, you know, we get our our list of what the index is going to look like um, from the third-party index calculator selective. They tell us what the new uh, names going into the index are going to be, the ones that are leaving, um, and then any of the weight changes um, of the, you know, components that are remaining. And my co-manager and I, uh, basically, in the week leading up to that event, I uh, have to prepare for a pretty busy uh, trading afternoon of uh, getting the ETF to line up to what that new index looks like. Now, in between those two periods, you know, those periods at the end of every quarter, um, there there's stuff to do there. We track on a daily basis, um, you know, the deviation of every security's weight from what its ideal weight would be if it can match the index exactly. Um, that's it's almost like a an aspirational goal. You can't always get there just because of the weights and the you know the prices of the stock, but you can get pretty close. Um, and if we need to make any adjustments to uh, the positions, we'll do that. Um, and, you know, and the reasons some of these things can happen um, in between rebalances would be cash flows in and out of the ETF. Uh, you could have dividends bringing cash in. Um, and then, you know, monthly management fees taking cash out. Um, there can be corporate actions that we have to deal with and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, it, it's uh, in between the rebalances, it's just a lot of watching and very occasionally doing something when the math is right. Don't always want to, you know, a single position, for example, is off by a couple thousand dollars. Yes, you could, in theory, bring it a little closer to the target weight, but then you're introducing frictional costs of trading as well. So there's kind of a, a judgment call that has to go into it there. Yes, and I should mention that there are two other passive ETFs that you manage to help fill up your week. Uh, so that's the Motley Fool Next Index ETF. The ticker symbol on that is TMFX. And then the Motley Fool Capital Efficiency 100 Index ETF, ticker TMFE. Do you want to offer a, a quick snapshot on, on both of those? Yeah, so if the, if the TMFC would be the 100 largest companies by market cap, the Motley Fool Next ETF is the next 100 below those. So it's structurally the same as to how the index is built, but it's the small and mid-cap version of the larger cap uh, ETF. And then the um, capital efficiency index ETF, um, that's focused on, um, comp- I would sum it up as profitable growth companies as determined by the analysts at, at the Motley Fool. Um, and that's how they, you know, they have a proprietary formula for putting together their index uh, and our ETF tracks that. All right, so we have the three index-based ETFs, but uh, I've got to say your job is not all rainbows and sunshine because you actually have to do some pretty heavy lifting on the Motley Fool Small Cap Growth ETF, ticker TMFS. That's an actively managed uh, ETF. You are the portfolio manager on that one as well. I, I want to spend a little bit more time on this one and, and maybe diving into the markets just a little bit, but but talk about the uh, overall investment approach with that product. Yeah, TMFS. Uh, S is our small cap growth ETF. It is actively managed, and I am the portfolio manager on it. Um, it, It's a pocket of the market in small caps where we believe that fundamental research can add value. Um, And so, 
You know, we have a, a process um, that we run every company through. Uh, we look at four things. We look at the management and culture of a company. Uh, we look at the economics because we want profitable growth. Uh, we want companies that have competitive advantages. And then we take a look at the five to ten year trajectory of the business because we are long-term buy-and-hold investors. Um, you know, now compare us to our benchmark, which is the Russell 2000 growth that has over a thousand companies in it. Uh, we're focused. We tend to own, you know, maybe 35 companies at any one time. Um, so, you know, we feel that there's value from being selective and choosy. Um, and I think coming out of a pretty brutal bear market in 2022, um, with saw a lot of indiscriminate selling of, uh, growth stocks in particular and definitely small caps. Uh, this is a year uh, driven by fundamentals, um, and, and, you know, we feel that, um, you know, our process, which is focusing on the companies that are doing well um, and have reasonable valuations, is, uh, is a process that can work in an environment like we're in right now. Okay, so that's a perfect spot to, I think, broaden out our conversation a little bit and, and get into the market environment. And yeah. I, I guess the way that I'll, I'll start this is if you look at small caps overall, so not just small cap growth or, or small cap value, just look at small caps overall, they have lagged this year. So if you look at the Russell 1000 versus the Russell 2000, uh, we're talking 13% versus 4%. Right, so so nine percent difference here. Any thoughts on what's driven that uh, underperformance from small caps? It, it's it's been a number of things. I think um, there's a flight towards quality with larger caps. Um, you know what you're getting. Um, I think there's also been thematic chasing this year with AI and large cap tech um, pulling money away from small caps. Um, and then I think there's also fears um, that the small caps might be disproportionately affected by uh, the macro environment, so rising interest rates and, uh, you know, potentially a recession later this year, but who knows if that's going to happen. So I think that has a, a lot of folks nervous about small caps, but um, as you say, they underperformed, and perhaps that's the opportunity. Regarding that uh, macro environment, and, and I'll note we are a crystal ball free podcast, at least for the most part. But any thoughts on what might happen with uh, interest rates moving forward and how that could impact small caps? I'm, I'm going to take uh, Fed Chair Powell at his word that the battle against inflation is going to take longer than people think. Um, and I, I think there, the consensus at the beginning of this year was that by year end, the Fed would be lowering rates rather than raising. And I don't think that's going to happen at all based on the last commentary um, out of the Fed. I think there's going to be at least two more hikes this year, and, and then we'll see what happens in 2024. Um, I, I think the market has reset a little bit last week with some sell-off. Um, but if, it, you know, if there are hikes in excess of what's priced in right now, that would compress multiples. And while valuations are more reasonable than they were um, before the bear market last year. They're, they're still, I've still seen price to sales in small cap land uh, in excess of uh, 10x on some tech and uh, healthcare names. So there is, there's room for mu uh, multiple compression, and that's where, uh, you know, as active uh, managers, we have to make sure that the prices we're paying are uh, fair or at least reasonable. Well, and that clearly gets into the overall fundamental backdrop for, for small caps. You were alluding to this a little bit um, earlier, but if you look at, say, earnings and revenue growth and those sorts of things, I, I know a lot of investors hear about these, quote, unquote, zombie companies um, dominating the small cap space. Just, just a couple of minutes left here. But what does that overall fundamental picture look like? Well, we're, we're cherry picking a little bit in our fund with uh, such a focused list of names. Um, so we are we're definitely biased and tilted to, to companies that are performing well. Um, so we were pretty insistent on, you know, consistent revenue growth, ideally profit growth to match. Um, we're hearing from the companies we own, I think, cautious optimism about the environment. But, you know, the, the management teams are acknowledging that, uh, you know, sales cycles are slower than they had been. Um, and they're acknowledging the, you know, potential impact of a recession on their businesses. So you're seeing guidance that is, you know, maybe lower than what the companies have delivered in the past couple of years. Um, but I think there's also an opportunity there as we go into Q2, Q3 earnings season 
for some of these best performers to start beating and raising what they said they were going to do. Um, and that's really what we're looking for on our team uh, as we head into uh, the July earnings season. Well, Charlie, really enjoyed hearing your uh, perspective this week. Also, uh, excellent insight into the passive management uh, process. You, you do have plenty to keep you busy. Thank you for uh, joining me. Thank you, Nate. This is a pleasure. That was Charlie Travers, Portfolio Manager at Motley Fool Asset Management. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Amplify ETFs. If you would like to learn more about Amplify ETFs, you can visit AmplifyETFs.com. Next week, honestly, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing yet following the uh, July 4th holiday, but I promise you I will have something uh, good. So I hope you'll uh, join me. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Oh, 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 oh,